Tonight we're going to talk about Hebrews chapter 2 verses 5 through 13 in a message I'm entitling, We See Jesus. And in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, the writer says, For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjugation to angels, But one testified in a certain place saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. And set set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now, we do not see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren saying I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly I will sing praise to you and again I will put my trust in him here am I and the children whom God has given me In the first chapter of Hebrews, the author has made the argument that Jesus is superior, having become so much better than the angels. Remember in in, in verse 4, God, in verse 4 of chapter 1, having become so much better than the angels as he has made by inheritance a more excellent name than they, Jesus is superior in his name. In his person, in his inheritance. And so the writer of Hebrews anticipates an objection or a question. Remember, he's writing to a group of so called Jewish believers who have embraced Christ but who are living on the very boundaries of whether or not they're going to return to Judaism and abandon Christ. And so he anticipates the question, well, how can Jesus be better if he has the limitation of a human body and all that goes with being a human? The writer of Hebrews anticipates the person who's saying, well, wait a minute, the Bible speaks of angelic beings. These are spirit beings and spirit beings have advantages over human beings. And so the writer is going to provide an explanation. 
Well, what do you say to the person? Well, if Jesus is superior to the angels and angels are spirit beings and they don't have all any of the limitations or the problems or the difficulties associated with being, being a, a, a human, then how can you possibly say that Jesus is superior and the writer is going to point out that the Lord God provided a body for Jesus in order to be the last Adam in verses 5 through 13, to defeat the devil in verses 14 through 16, to be a sympathetic high priest in verses 17 through 18. The writer of Hebrews has already told us that Jesus is really for real, for real God. But everybody knows that he is for real, for real man. The chapter began with a warning in verses 1 through 4. Remember at the end of of verse 4 where The writer says, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. He has warned, how can you neglect so great a salvation? And so, now he's going to focus on the work of Christ in verses 15 through, or in verses 5 through 18. In God's sovereignty, Jesus created all people in verses 5 and 6. Cares for them at the end of verse 6 and 7. Commissioned Adam to be in charge of God's original creation in verse 8. Things went horribly wrong. Jesus agreed to come to the earth. He's made a little lower than the angels. Man's rebellion has resulted in a kind of a forfeiture of control. And so Jesus will die on crap. Calvary's cross for sinful human beings and so Jesus lives to make us holy or separate and so the Lord God didn't create the earth for angels and the writer is going to argue that the Lord allowed human beings to be created with human bodies to live in this world to live in the circumstances that we find ourselves in And that it makes perfect sense that in our human condition that we would one day pass from this human condition and we will be given a glorious body that's appropriate for our final destination. And it makes perfect sense that God would allow Jesus to come, that he would be made human, he would be made a little lower than the angels so that he could suffer death for human beings, be exalted and crowned with honor and glory to reveal in part the glory of God, to reveal the nature of God. He is the captain of our salvation. He reconciles us with his father so that his father can become our father. And we are joint heirs with Christ as brothers and sisters so that we can worship God in verse 12. And so that we will be allowed to trust God in verse 13. And so he's talking about the Lord's future fantastic plans. For this world, human beings' destiny for man, God's exciting exaltation of Jesus crammed in verses 5 through 13 is God's plans for the world, God's plans for Jesus. And so he's going to talk about God's plans for you. And so in verse 5, It says, for he has not put the world to come 
of which we speak in subjection to angels. What does that mean? Which world is the author making reference? For he, that's God the Father, has not put the world to come. Which world is this? Is this the fallen world? Is this the broken world? Is this the world in which we are living in? The world that is talked about in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where Adam and Eve is placed in a garden where there's rebellion and disobedience. And now we live in that broken, fallen world, but, but that one day Jesus will re- return to that broken, fallen world and he will obtain the throne of his father David and occupy it for a thousand years. Is this the cursed and fallen world? Is this the, this planet that we're on right now? Or is this a future world? Is this, is this a reference to a new heaven and a new earth that will one day come into existence? And I'm going to suggest to you that whatever else it means, for he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, whether we're talking about this world Or the next world, what this world and the next world both have in common is it's not going to be run by angels. The writer's argument is God created the heavens and the earth and he didn't stick angels in the Garden of Eden. He stuck human beings in the Garden of Eden. He didn't stick angels in the future... State of whatever the new heavens and the new earth are going to look like, but he's making the suggestion that God, it was always a part of God's plan. It was always a part of God's plan. It was always a a part of God's plan to make human beings, of which that's you, unless you're an angel and you snuck in here unaware and you're disguised as a human being to try and trick me. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not about tricking me. I'm, I'm not kidding about what it means to be a human being. That God created human beings for friendship and fellowship and relationship. Now I want you to think about this. For the observant Jew, the Jew in the first century, to imagine the holy God acquiring a human nature. Imagine you're living in the first century and you've been taught your whole life The Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You are hinted at the triunity of the personhood, that there is God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and the idea of the self-existent God coming to the planet Earth, acquiring a new nature, a human nature, a human body. That seemed unthinkable. And this remains the great Jewish objection. And it remains the great Muslim objection. Objection, And it remains the great objection by the agnostic and the skeptic and the atheist. They're constantly asking the question, how could God possibly become a human being? How could the self-existent God literally leave heaven, acquire a new nature, a human nature? How is that even possible? And so you can imagine there are a lot of people who stumble trip over that concept. And the Bible teaches that Jesus is God and that Jesus is man. And in the first century, the big question really wasn't whether or not Jesus was God. The real question 
was really was he a real human being? Was it just an illusion? Did he have the appearance of a man? Did he just look like a human being? But somehow it was a it it, it, it was a fabrication, almost like there there was just this like a sock puppet where it looks human and it talks human, but it really isn't human. And they would make up stories that Jesus would walk on the beach and and he would never leave footprints because he wasn't really there. The writer doesn't dispute that Jesus is a man, but rather he's making the argument that even as a man, Jesus is better than the angels. We already know that the writer of Hebrews believes that Jesus is God and that he's a real human being. And so in verse 6, the Lord's manifest destiny for man... In verses 6 through 8, it says, But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you should take care of him? The one who's testifying is the writer of Psalm 8. He quotes Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. And as he's quoting... Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you would take care of him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Who is the subject? What is man that you're mindful of him? Is he talking about humanity in general? Is he talking about the human Messiah, the human Christ? Because what is being said is true of both of them. Kenneth Wiest offers valuable insight. The Greek scholar writes, quote, The question as to whether the Messiah or man is spoken of in verses 6 through 8 of Psalm 8 is settled easily and finally by the Greek word translated visit. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you, in our translation in the New King James Version, it says take care of him. In the Old King James it says visit him. Or that thou visitest him. The psalmist is explaining according to Weiss as to the insignificance of man. In the question, what is man that thou art mindful of him? That is clear. But to whom do the words son of man refer to? The Messiah who is called the son of man or to mankind? The Greek word visit is epi, skeptomai. The word means To look upon in order to help or to look upon in order to benefit or to look after in order to care for. Then we says, 
This clearly indicates that the Son of Man spoken of here is the human race. God looks upon the human race in order to help the human race or benefit the human race. Thus, the picture in verses 6 through 8 is that of the human race of Adam, unquote. And this becomes so very, very important. A.T. Robertson points out that the definite article is absent, not the son of man, but rather son of man, much like the expression used in Ezekiel. In the, in the book of Ezekiel, over 80 times Ezekiel is called son of man. Barclay, Vincent, all agree it's a reference to the glory of man as God meant it to be. And so, why is this important to you and I? Because, again, we're going to begin to understand something in a moment. Because there's all kinds of thoughts, ideas, philosophies, suggestions about the relationship of God and the relationship of man. You have made him a little lower than the angels, verse 7. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. If these passages are references to human beings, and I believe that they are, to mankind then it becomes a revelation, if you will, concerning man's past and future. Why indeed does God take note of human beings? You probably asked that question. Imagine you look out into the world. Let's say you make the mistake of watching CNN and Fox News and the news channels, and you're inundated with all of these images of horror. You, you're inundated with the images of pain. You're Im- inundated with the images of, of human beings doing unspeakable horrors to one another. Why indeed should God take note of human beings? Why doesn't he just crush us? Why doesn't he purge the planet of our presence? Like some of our pantheistic friends or our philosophical naturalist friends. Think about the people that you maybe even went to school with who picture the planet and the surface of the planet covered with human beings, that the human beings are a sort of a biological virus that infects everything that they touch. And the Bible says exactly the opposite. Why doesn't he just purge the planet? Why doesn't he just give the future, future world to angelic beings? Why doesn't, just like in the days of Noah, he just washes everyone away in a flood and then populates the planet with people who will cooperate with him? And the writer is making the point that God created human beings really. To love them and to care for them. He created them in such a way that they were prepared to live on this planet. To occupy the planet. Even to take dominion over the planet. And so earlier when he said how can we neglect so great a salvation. That also includes ruling and reigning with Christ in a future kingdom. The writer is making the suggestion God made human beings to live here and to rule here and to be an important part of what it means to be here and that God in Christ was going to bring us to a place where we would be restored to the humanity that he entrusted with us in the beginning. 
He's going to make the surprising, when you say it out loud, statement. God created human beings to love him and have friendship with him and fellowship with him, but also to rule and reign with Christ. Human beings were made because, as crazy as this sounds, he loves people. I know it sounds like crazy. Do you you know someone who loves like animals, dogs? They're crazy about their pets. They're crazy about their pets. You know, if, if you asked them a question, your dog falls into the reservoir and a, a human being falls into the reservoir, who would you rescue? I'm thinking, I'm thinking about it. You know, they know in their, in, in their right mind that the right answer is you're supposed to save the human being, but with all of their heart and with all of their soul, they want to rescue their dog. I actually don't get that. I don't understand that. I have room in my heart for only one animal my whole life. But God, because he is God, has room in his heart for you, for every one of you. I know it's hard for maybe some of you to believe, but according to the Bible, according to the Bible, the self-existent God who occupies eternity thinks about you on a regular basis. He thinks about you personally, individually. He cares about you every moment of every day. And so the Bible teaches that human beings were made by God, that they're not here by accident, that they're here on purpose, and that God's plan for human beings was always that they were going to have friendship and fellowship with with him. In verse 7 it says, You have made him a little lower than the angels. Here, little probably is a reference to time. It's not a reference to state or position. In what sense? Human beings were made a little lower than angelic beings or spirit beings. In value? No. In love? No. In affection? No. In what sense? They were made a little lower than the angels. I'm going to suggest to you in the sense that that human beings are spirit beings. Angelic beings are spirit beings. Human beings are spirit beings who have a body. And because we have a body and because we're living in the circumstances that we're living in, some of you are going, you're made a little lower In what sense? In the sense of time, you are going to be born and you are going to live. And the truth is, I hate to be the one to break it to you, but unless the Lord Jesus comes back in the rapture, you're going to die. You're going to turn 20 and 30 and 40 and 50. And some of you, by reason of strength, might even make it to 70. And some of you might climb past 80. And some of you might even go to 90. But one day, your heart will stop beating and your eyes will close. And you will abandon this body of flesh. That's the point that he's making. But from the beginning, but from the beginning of time, 
God's plan was to elevate and lift human beings to a place of honor and nobility and were shocked and surprised to discover that God created human beings again for friendship and fellowship but also to crown human beings with glory and honor. And some of you get a little bit of a hint of that if you've ever seen the movie the Narnia series, or if you ever read the book, and in the Narnia series, there's this picture of, of, of these children who, who are going to occupy a place of ruling and reigning. He, in the Narnia series, he has children occupying the place of, of greatest honor. And so when God creates Adam and Eve, he creates them perfect, disease-free In their body, excellent mind, intelligence, creativity, ability. Have you ever actually tried to imagine what Adam and Eve looked like and what they were capable of? If you've ever just paused for a moment and you're thinking, well, I think that Adam would look like Brad Pitt. (laughs) Or, Or Eve would look like Jennifer Garner. You know, you have this idealized vision of what a man should look like and what a woman should look like and how tall they should be and and how they should speak or how they should look or whatever it is. And in your mind, your mind begins to race as you begin to think about what does a perfect specimen of a human being, unfallen, untainted, free from depravity, free from wickedness and rebellion. And and you see hints of it. You see hints of it. You'll be looking around and you'll see a, a beautiful man or a beautiful woman or a lovely child or a great athlete. And you'll see the palest reflection of Adam and Eve. You see in them the perfection of our mother and our father. You see beauty and you see mind and you see creativity. And you think about the genius of Einstein or the, the, the genius of Beethoven or, or the philosophical genius of a Jonathan Edwards or a George Washington Carver in his ability to invent. And so you see in these individual humans hints, glimpses into what human beings are supposed to be. You'll watch a gymnast and you'll see the tumbling routine and you go, how can a human being do that? You'll watch the Olympics and you'll see them swim and you'll see them climb and you'll see the best representative in their individual sports and you begin to push closer and closer and closer to what the ideal human should look like and be like. Imagine human beings absent sin incorporating all of God's gifts and you begin to understand something. You get Just the slightest picture, the the slightest hint of what God had in mind. Placing them in a perfect world, peace, tranquility, affection between all of God's creation. No violence, no storms, no plagues, no terrors, no death. Uh, Imagine people subjugating the planet without in any way upsetting its order. And we subdue the world and then we even subdue the solar system and then we we even venture out to the stars. But our 
power and our potential has been marred by sin and limited by sin. Sin has twisted us and perverted us and caused some of us to deny God or fabricate an origin more to our own liking. We imagine now a universe where all of a sudden we just sort of showed up. In a sum of a million happy coincidences over billions of years. And then that we're suddenly self-aware. But the psalmist wrote in Psalm 100 verse 3. Know ye that the Lord he is God. It is he who has made us. And not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. The writer of Hebrews is elevating human beings and drawing to our attention that God created us because he loves us and values us. And what of our current state? But what about our fallen state? And you may want to escape to some primitive wilderness or beautiful shore that's unmarked and unmarred by human beings. And instead you go to Africa and you see thousands and thousands and thousands of people riddled with Ebola and beheadings in the Middle East and murder and hate and war and greed and a desperate scramble for power and people who make selfish choices. And you see a humanity that has been soiled with suffering and adultery and fear and drunkenness and intoxication and pride and jealousy. And then you realize that you've been infected as well. And like a cloud that's ready to burst. A dark, thick cloud gathers over the surface of the earth. And you know it's going to cleanse the earth of the presence of humanity by death. So how did we lose the glory? And how did we lose the honor? And how did we lose the power and the rule and the dominion? Life itself, fellowship with God. You know the story. Human beings made the choice to say... I don't believe what God has said. I don't believe that God has asked me to do something or believe something or be something. And Adam fell. And in verse 8, look what it says. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. The writer is saying, look around you. Does it look like Jesus is in charge? it doesn't, does it? It doesn't look like Jesus is in charge. It doesn't look like Jesus is in charge when things go horribly and terribly wrong. We don't see the promises fulfilled. We don't see that Jesus has returned. We were meant for so much more. Just like the song says, we were meant to be something more. Sin You've heard it defined so many different ways. Let me give you yet another one. Sin, not doing what God said. Caused Adam to fall. And the ultimate destiny of man is found in his dignity. 
a dignity that's reflected in his origin and redemption. This is why there's such a powerful, powerful need on the part of a world that rejects God to try to convince you that, that, that you weren't really made by God and that the Bible isn't really true. And over and over again, the testimony of the Bible is, no, God really did make you. No, you really are loved. No, you, you were made for a purpose and a destiny. And so you also see the Lord's exaltation of Jesus in verses 9 through 13. Look what it says in verse 9. But, but we see Jesus. Remember what it was just said? You look around you and what do you see? Hurt, guilt, suffering, pain. But we see Jesus. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. Now again, remember what I said to you earlier. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. Lower in what sense? Lower in the sense that he has a physical body given for this world, given for suffering and death. Is Jesus less than angels? No, he created the angels, remember? Remember in the opening chapter, the, the writer is making a clear and convincing case that Jesus is the creator, that he created the heavens and the earth, and that he created the angels. And so the writer is making that point lower in the sense of a physical body. He comes from heaven to a virgin's womb. From Bethlehem to Gethsemane to Gabbatha. Gabbatha is that pavement that was the stone pavement in the Antonine Fortress where Jesus is attached to a pillar and he's beaten to Golgotha, to the tomb. Yet he's still crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because he rises from the dead. By the grace of God, he is going to live and he is going to die and he is going to taste death for everyone. That was God's plan for Jesus. Can you imagine? God, what's your plan for me? Hey, you know what? You're going to be born of a virgin. Hey, uh, and you are going to go to Jerusalem. And here's my plan for you. You are going to be cruelly murdered in the most ghastly fashion possible. Okay, what's plan number two? There is no plan number two. You're going to taste death for everyone. That was God's plan for Jesus. But remember, it's a plan that includes hope. Why is Jesus doing this? Because human beings are fallen. We're plagued with sin. We're enslaved by evil. We live in a corrupt world that is in Gulfed with even further corruption. And in all of this pain. And in all of this brokenness. And in all of this sorrow. We. See. Jesus. What do you see? What is it that you invite yourself to look at? What is it that you invite yourself to focus on? 
What is it that you invite yourself to look at? Does your vision seem to rest on a dungeon or despair? Do you live in a world where you're looking at perpetual darkness? Do you live in a constant state of doubt and unbelief? But what happens? What happens? What happens? What happens if you will dare, if you will dare to look at Jesus? What will happen if you take your eyes off of yourself or the wicked and the broken world, if you take your eyes off all of the stuff that you see around you and you begin to look At Jesus, you begin to look full in his wonderful face. And the answer might surprise you. If you look at Jesus, guess what often happens? Often seeing God, when you look at Jesus, when you begin to think about Jesus, and you dwell, concentrate, and otherwise consider Jesus, what do you see? If you're honest with yourself, even for one split second, if for one moment you will consider Jesus and you will look at him and you'll look at his life and you look what he says and you look what he does, you become overwhelmed at how perfect he is and how imperfect you are. You become convicted by his goodness. You, like Peter, will all of a sudden come to that place where you will beg Jesus to go away from you. You'll go, depart from me, Lord, because I'm a sinner. You see, what happens when you begin to look at Jesus and you begin to hang out with Jesus and you begin to consider Jesus, all of a sudden the difficulties, the pain, the problems, the the diminishments, the failures in your own life become crystal clear. Looking at Jesus honestly will bring a sense of conviction. Do you remember our study in the book of Job? In Job chapter 42 verse 5, and again it's repeated in Isaiah chapter 6. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now I see you with my eyes. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And when you see the Lord high and lifted up in all of his glory and all of his goodness and all of his splendor, you begin to understand exactly what's going on with you. But you know what else you see? If you'll continue to look, You'll continue to see the Lord will bring salvation. You'll see Jesus as the object of faith. You'll see Jesus as the object of deliverance. You'll see Jesus as the bringer of joy. You will see Jesus with clarity and understanding. And you look at Jesus and then you'll begin to, then everything else will begin to make sense. Just like John writes in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Behold what manner of love the fathers lavished upon us, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know this, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him. And now you look at him. And you see him as the glorified Savior who came back to life, who ever lives for you. At the end of the verse, the writer says that he might taste death for everyone. 
But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. The word translates a word that means to experience something, to partake of something. Those of you who are parents, have you ever sat with a child and you watch the child play with this food and you go, I need you to eat your food. And they're playing with the food and they're moving it to one side of the plate. They're moving it to the other side of the plate. They're moving it to the top, to the, to the bottom. They play compass with their food. They'll do everything with the food except eat it. And you say something really silly like, try it you might like it. Taste and see the Lord is good. That's what this word means. It means to partake. It means to participate. It means to experience. God sent Jesus to partake or experience death. And for the person who says, well, wait a minute, I thought God can't die. No, God can't die. God didn't die. Jesus died. I thought you said Jesus is God. He is. He's one person with two natures. He is completely human. He is completely God. This real Jesus who's a real human with all of the attributes and nature of a human who is able to participate in all that humans can participate in, will die. And that was all a part of God's plan. And so the author invites the reader to believe that when Jesus returns, when we see Jesus, he's inviting us to believe that when we see Jesus, when we see Jesus returning in glory, that the dominion of a world that was lost to Adam is restored to Jesus. Everything that we gave up in Adam, we get back in Christ. Jesus will restore what Adam lost and more. And we'll have more to say about that as we continue our study in the book of Hebrews. Suffice it to say in verse 10, for it was fitting for him. Notice the big H in your Bible. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. I'm going to suggest to you that in verse 10, where it says, for it was fitting for him, the big H is a reference to God the Father. The idea being, it makes perfect sense that the God who created Adam and Eve in a garden and created them to exercise dominion and authority over a really perfect world, that it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make 
the captain of their salvation, perfect through suffering. It makes perfect sense that this is exactly what God would do. That he, he would allow Jesus to live the life that you could never live. That he would allow Jesus to die for your sin. That he would allow Jesus to come back to life. Why? Why? Because it reveals the very nature of God. It reveals the very intention of God. It reveals what God really believes about you. That he made you and that he loves you and that he wants to forgive you. In the righteous character of God, it was fitting that God in Christ should restore what Adam lost. That's part of the argument that's being made. Everything that was lost, we should be able to get back. The humiliation of the Savior makes it possible the exaltation of sinners. Sin has disturbed God's order. And the Savior brings it back. MacDonald writes, before order could be brought out of chaos, sin must be dealt with righteously. It was consistent with the holy character of God that Christ should suffer and bleed and die to put away our sin. That was God's plan because he's a wise planner. He made everything for his glory. He made everything for his pleasure. And you might be think, but I'm nowhere near what I'm supposed to be. I know. Isn't that exciting? What do you mean? I mean that the plan of God and the purpose of God in salvation, read it for yourself, was to bring many sons to glory. Do you understand now what the writer of Hebrews is saying? I'm picking you out. I'm picking you out. I'm picking you out. Oh, yeah, I'm going to glorify you. Ooh, yeah, I'm going to glorify. Ooh, yeah, I'm going to make you exactly what you were always supposed to be. I'm going to forgive you and cleanse you and wash you. I'm going to create within you a new heart. I'm going to establish something inside of your heart where you get to live like you never got to live before. So what does that mean? He wants to bring many sons to glory. This means it's the process whereby God justifies you and then sanctifies you and then glorifies you. McDonald writes, quote, and what is the cost of our glorification? The captain of our salvation had to be made perfect through suffering. In order to understand this, you have to at least have a tiny idea of what the captain of your salvation means. My son Miguel is a captain in the army. When you hear the word captain, you think of a military officer or you might think of a guy who's in charge of the boat. And maybe in your rather fertile imagination, it's the love boat. But that's actually not the meaning here. The word is an interesting word. It, it, in the New Testament, it only appears a couple of times. It's, it's the Greek word archegos. It, it was a word that was used in the ancient world of the Greeks to describe a hero. 
a hero who captures a wild territory and clears the territory and establishes a city and then you, get, you have the city named after you. Whether it's a Greek god or a Greek hero. And so it describes in this particular instance... Jesus' moral character and his substitutionary death. God found a way of saving us that was worthy of himself. He sent his only begotten son to die in our place. The picture is of a person who comes and clears out the territory and then establishes something that's wild and makes it peaceful and civilizes it for himself. And so in verse 11, it says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. If you look at the passage, what that basically is saying is, For both he, Jesus, who sanctifies, that means sets you apart, and those who are being sanctified, that's you. The person who's saved, the person who's cleansed, the person who's washed. For which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. God's plan and purpose has come to fruition. And for who for the joy who is set before him sees you and says, I'm not ashamed to call you my brethren. Now, I don't know about you, but maybe you have somebody in your family, that one person who seems to always bring embarrassment to your family shame to your family there might be someone in your family where you know they all of a sudden show up and they say is that is that who is that person well this is my mother this is my brother this is my father this is that weird uncle who you know shows up and is a great big fat stinking embarrassment But the Bible is making the point that he's not embarrassed or ashamed. Imagine you show up in heaven and people say, who, who, who are you again? And Jesus says, time out. Jesus says, oh, that's my brother. That's my sister. They're a part of my family. She's with me. He's with me. Jesus sanctifies human beings. And and basically what that word means, it means he separates us from the world and then he separates us to to ourself. In the Bible, a sanctified person is one who's set apart from the ordinary and is now set aside for a specific function, for something that's extraordinary. And the point that the writer of Hebrews is making is that if you are saved, God has set you aside. He set you aside for his specific possession. The claim being that you belong to him. We are set aside for his use, his pleasure, his enjoyment. And I know that sometimes you don't think of yourself that way. 
Hi, I'm Gino. I'm set aside by God for his use, his pleasure. His en- I exist because God's made it that way. You see, I know that you live in a world, we live in a broken world where Satan will constantly try to tell you, you exist for his pleasure, his use, his enjoyment, or your husband, or your wife, or your children, or the economy of this country, or a political party, or some sort of theme or great mission that has been ascribed to you. But no matter who you are and no matter what you do, your real reason to exist is for his use, his pleasure, his enjoyment. And one of the ways in order to understand the meaning of sanctify is to understand the opposite word. The word is profanation or that which is profane. Profane is a word that means not holy, not set apart, not in the derogatory sense. It just means it's something that's common or ordinary. For those of you who deal with valuable things, imagine you go into a jewelry store and there's a cup of marbles and they're made out of glass. And a child walks in and says, these are the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. They're wonderful and beautiful. And the jeweler laughs and he says, it's a marble and they're 10 cents a piece. And then you go to a diamond that has the same size with a crystal clear clarity and a magnificent beauty. And its value is inestimable. There's certain things that are ordinary, calm, common. And there's certain things that are extraordinary, separated. In the Bible, things would be separated. Nations would be separated. People could be separated. To live for God and live for the word of God. Dr. Harold Wilmington gives a helpful contrast of sanctification with justification. He says, justification deals with our standing, while sanctification deals with our state. Justification is that which God does for us, while sanctification is that which God does in us. Justification is an act. Sanctification is a work. Justification is a means. Sanctification is the end. Justification makes us safe. Sanctification makes us sound. Justification declares we're good. Sanctification makes us good. Justification removes guilt and the penalty of sin. Sanctification checks the growth and power of sin. Justification furnaces the track that leads to heaven. Sanctification is the train that takes you to heaven. He sanctified you. Jesus is the track and the train that gets you where you need to go. And so in verse 12, look what it says. I'll declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I'll sing praise to you. We may have family members who cause us grief and we're reluctant to admit. But Jesus is never, ever ashamed of us. Why? The writer appeals to scripture and then he appeals to this sanctification. He's saying these are all the reasons that Jesus is going to own up that he knows you. Have you ever been in a relationship 
where you wondered whether or not if push came to shove that the person would admit that they really know you? Look, you are going to tell them that you really know me, right? Can you imagine getting to heaven and there's Jesus and Jesus goes, You know me, right? When he, here in in verse 12, he's citing Psalm 22, verse 22. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing to you. The idea is I'm going to declare your name to my brethren. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. And in Psalm 22, it's a picture, it's a prophetic picture of the Messiah dying on the cross for your sin. Rising, pierced. My brother, the, the, the verse pictures the Messiah identified with his people, united in worship. I'll declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. The, the Messianic psalm is a picture of the Messiah dying for, the, for sins. Here's the picture that's drawn in Psalm 22. Jesus is living. He's dying for your sins. He's dying for your sins. And in his dying agony, Jesus is dying in his dying agony. He sees into the future. He sees into a future where he's leading the ransomed saints in the congregation of the saved to praise of God the Father. And that's the point that the writer is making. He's saying, Jesus, your Messiah, envisions you And sings about you. And again in verse 13. I will put my trust in him. And again here am I. And the children whom God has given me. The writer of Hebrews cites two major passages. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 17. Where the Messiah speaks of putting his trust in God. Confidence in Jehovah. As one of the marks of his true humanity. And then in Isaiah chapter 8 verse 18. The Lord is quoted as saying. Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. The thought is that they're members of a common family. They're acknowledging a common father. And so the writer is appealing to these two passages. Remember sanctification and scripture. In order to point out why Jesus, when push comes to shove, is going to accept you and acknowledge you and and say, I know who you are. Isaiah wrote chapter 8 in the context of an impending Assyrian invasion. A son was born to Isaiah, a son whose name would reflect the prophecy and the fulfillment that Assyria would succeed in the invasion. And so the prophet identifies his sons with the prophecies. He literally names his sons after the fact that God has spoken and that God was going to fulfill his promise that he was going to discipline the Jews and occupy them. The outward circumstances in Psalm 22... A painful death for Jesus. The outward circumstances of Isaiah 8. An invasion and destruction. A crucifixion, invasion. This is tragic. This is bleak. These aren't things that are good. These are are things that on the surface look really, really bad. But the eye of faith looks beyond the immediate circumstance to the ultimate triumph. The point that the passage is trying to make is you look around and you see a broken and a fallen world. A world where it doesn't look like Jesus is in charge. But God has made a promise and that Jesus is in fact in charge. 
And that even when you're talking about the invasion of Israel, and even when you're talking about the death on the cross, the eye of faith looks beyond the immediate circumstance to the ultimate triumph of Jesus because this is all part of a plan that God is going to bring to fruition because his promises are true and his plans are secure because he's going to accomplish what he is meant to accomplish. And that ultimately, that ultimately, that ultimately means to save you, to forgive you, to cleanse you, to wash you, to reconcile you to himself. And so the, the writer of Hebrews is arguing that the only true human that can restore what Adam has lost is Jesus. And so this is why Jesus is superior. He's superior in his sovereignty. He's superior in his suffering. He's superior in his sympathy. Because imagine you're a Jewish person and you see God as this distant, invisible, unapproachable, untouchable deity. But Jesus becomes a human being. He lives in this world. He cries real tears. He dies a real death. Because he loves you. And he argues that the limitations of the body and the mind will one day be removed. And the consequence of sin will be be cleansed. And because you can see his wounds. And because you can see his humanity. And because you can see his tears. And because you understand his destiny. You can understand your own destiny. It's the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is God creates the heavens and the earth with the intention of giving it to human beings. Human beings lose it. Jesus gets it back. You know, we sometimes see ourselves with all of our fault and all of our feelings and our frailty. You wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you don't see the future. You see the past. You see the failure. You see the disappointment. But the writer invites you to look past the fault and the feeling and the foible and the frailty. He asks you to look past the failure and then he invites you to look at Jesus. So that you can see clearly into the future. But we'll continue our study next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the word of God. Lord, thank you that we don't have to believe the lies of Satan, but that we can embrace the truth and the Bible's reoccurring message that it's God's plan not to hurt us, but to help us. Not to kill us, but to save us. Not to give us what we deserve, but to give us what we don't deserve.
And so, Heavenly Father, again, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you for the privilege that we have to gather together, to open up this Bible, to see what it says, and then apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.